This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. He seemed destined for stardom, but linebacker Chris Borland walked away from the NFL because he was concerned about traumatic brain injuries, like chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or CTE. His decision may have opened the door for other players to reconsider their own futures. It's why ESPN called him the most dangerous man in football. This week, Borland addresses the Conference on World Affairs at CU Boulder. He'll be joined by Dr. Saurav Padar, medical director for CU Athletics. He also directs the school's primary care sports medicine program. And uh, they are with us from Boulder. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. It's great to be here. Thank you for having us. Chris, you left the San Francisco 49ers after playing just one season. Are you, as ESPN said, the most dangerous man in football? Well, I've had a lovely morning with Dr. Padar, and I seem like an awfully nice guy to be considered dangerous. So <laughs> I, I don't hold myself uh, in that in that framework. But um, if it works for their title, I guess that's, that's, that's why they printed it. Well, tell us more about your decision to leave the game. Yeah, well, it was um, a discovery for me. Um, I did have a, a few diagnosed concussions um, prior to even playing college football. Um, and as I learned more, um, was introduced to things that I'd never considered. Um, you know, I, I could tell you what CTE was, but I couldn't tell you what the acronym stood for entering the league. Um, I didn't know the brain sat unfastened in a pool of cerebrospinal fluid. And um, you know, I was a history major, so this was, this was completely new to me. Um, and I set out early. Um, I, I was concussed in camp and played through it. I think that's the nature of, of the game sometimes. Um, I was a third-round draft pick, so... My spot wasn't secure on the team necessarily, um, and I didn't report that concussion. Um, so then that kind of changed my thinking uh, and my approach toward the, towards the game. And throughout the year, uh, I was looking into the issue initially um, to discredit people. I thought hmm. um, research coming out of Boston University was, was being exaggerated. I thought the brain bank was a, a biased sample. Um, but I felt after reading about things that the University of Michigan's published and and Boston University, and an actuary estimate from the NFL, and on and on and on, it became too much to ignore uh, with my personal history um, in combination with it. So my goal went from playing um, as long as I could to maybe I'll play five years, and by the end of the season and after contemplating it for a few months afterwards, um, thought it'd be best to just choose another life track. Oh, was that a hard decision to make? Oh, it was, it was excruciating. Um, I love football. I loved playing. I love being on a team and um, was fortunate to have success at Wisconsin. I was an All-American there and, and Big Ten Defensive Player of the Year. Um, and then with the 49ers, um, led the team in tackles. So, um, you know, I was excelling at my passion and living a dream. Um, I, I do feel that uh, my goals in, in football and my goals with personal health diverged and uh, I had to side with my health. Did you do this for yourself or for your family or both? Both. Um, part of this decision for me that uh, is very personal is, is I never had a grandfather. And, um, you know, it's possible my, my kids won't ha- have a granddad on, on my side. So um, breaking the cycle of Borland men dying young um, is an intensely personal goal, but um, one that maybe other football players and NFLers don't share. But um, that's something that, you know, I want to be cognitively and physically healthy when I'm when I'm 75 and um, didn't feel like from my experience and from the, the data that's available that that was as likely had I played for another decade. 
Dr. Badar, you're a former soccer player. That's a sport in which there's plenty of head trauma. And as a doctor who, who studies concussions and their effect on the brain, I want to know, do you think more people should be making the decision that Chris did? Um, should, should football be banned? Let me pose a polemic there. Well, that's a great question. As I think Chris very eloquently stated, it's a very personal decision that he made. And really, as we look at over the last decade, uh, you know, one of the things that I like to say is my job has become easier when I'm helping manage athletes with sports-related concussion because there's an increased awareness. And I think the culture around concussion has really evolved over that last decade. It was interesting to hear Chris mention, hey, I felt like I needed to play through and hide uh, a concussion that I had during training camp because my spot on the team wasn't secure. And I think hopefully as we increase awareness, that would happen less and less. Uh, and the management plans that we currently have in place that are continuing to evolve, you know, we uh, over the last, I think, annually, you know, at University of Colorado, we have a concussion protocol that we look at, revise, look at current science, and uh, put into play for the upcoming season. And I think that's done across the nation now uh, based on NCAA guidance and mandate. And so uh, I think we co- we've come a long way. I think sports in general are wonderful. You know, I think both of us sitting here, uh, got to experience so the all the benefits of playing a team sport and the the successes and the failures and how to deal with that and just learning how to be active. Uh, so I think uh, those are important pieces. Yeah, I want to explore this term manage, management of concussions. So there's a part of me that thinks, well, you get hit in the head. What, you know, what, it's either that or, or not. What do you mean management? What are ways? Give me an example of a step that schools have taken that even with a head injury, the odds might be better long-term for, for someone's health. Sure. So I think initial management and the culture that Chris alluded to where, you know, currently if we're worried about concussion-like symptoms, it's very simple algorithm. That person does not go back into the game. Uh, and so, and then there's a protocol of testing that is done to try to ascertain when it is safe for that person clinically to start a graded return to progression protocol. I think a lot of uh, what was has been in the press with brain banks, and um, I agree with Chris, there is, uh, there's a lot of compelling evidence and information that has come out, um, but I think we're still continuing to evolve into really good randomized control studies to really ascertain what happens with repetitive uh, contact sports. And, and really in the NCA, when you look at our injury database, we talk a lot about football, but gosh, hockey uh, has no a higher rate. And uh, it, it's, it's, uh, so it's not a, not a football only um, entity. That, well, let me that note that discussing. the NFL has instituted a number of uh, rules regarding how much contact is allowed among players. Is that true as well in the college game? Unfortunately, it's not. Um, for everything, at least to the degree that the NFL has, um, for everything the NFL's um, 
you know, done wrong. Um, the fact that you can only have contact 14 or 15 times throughout a season is a, is a wonderful improvement. Mm. Um, no contact in the off season. Um, to me, that's a very sensible measure that right there you reduce contact uh, and you reduce head injuries. A lot of injuries occur in practice. Um, and, and in college, we practiced in full pads on Tuesday and Wednesday and half pads on Thursday. And depending on how we did on Saturday, if coach wasn't pleased, maybe we'd be in helmets again on Sunday. Um, 15 bowl prep practices, 15 spring ball practices, and 30 um, in the fall fall camp, although they're not all padded. That's an awful lot of contact. And to me, just, you know, I'm not a medical professional, um, but as a football player, um, and I can tell you through experience, uh, the soundest way to reduce uh, injuries is to reduce exposure. And so I think the less we hit, um, the better off we are um, in terms of player health. Dr. Bedar, you want to answer that for a CEO? Sure, sure. Uh, you know, actually, recently, over the last couple of years, there's uh, new NCAA guidelines, and there's a great awareness of exposure. And uh, there's been efforts and new guidelines and best practices that have been implemented to reduce exposure, you know, gotten, gotten away from two days. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've gotten away uh, from having uh, more than one live contact practice in season. And so I think over the few years since you graduated, there's been some great strides that have been made, Chris, which, uh, which I think are, 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 are hopefully will be successful. So th- this is really fascinating. Um, CU as part of the NCAA is uh, taking part in a study that includes the Department of Defense, which seems like a bit of a, a case of strange bedfellows, Dr. Padar. Well, there's an NCAA DOD care consortium study. We're we're not officially part of it yet, but the Pac-12 conference yeah. um, is is putting together, and and we'll we will have a what is called a semi-autonomous regional hub within this consortium. That's the the work that's being done. Uh, our colleagues at two of other institutions have been. Uh, enrolled as part of the study, original study, and uh, hopefully uh, I've been really impressed um, with my colleagues at other Pac-12 institutions uh, as well as the Pac-12 conference office to re- had a really uh, a lot of support behind uh, us as medical professionals being able to uh, study and provide evidence to what we bring to the management of our athletes, whether it's injuries or concussions or, uh, you know, health and safety issues. Right. And the the benefits cut both ways, both for the Department of Defense and for these athletic institutions. Um, I want to address what what might be a, a fundamental conflict here. Dr. Padar, which is that you are both looking out for the health of the players, but, you know, your paycheck is paid by uh, CU, which places a real emphasis on football. Um, Is that a tough position to be in? And does it mean that you always make the the best decision for players? You know, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I think first and foremost, as physicians in general, you know, we take a Hippocratic oath and our our allegiance is to our patient always, first and foremost, and there's a shared decision-making process. Um, you know, in, in our 
in our setting here at University of Colorado, you know, I'm I'm not employed by the athletic department. I'm faculty. I'm an associate professor at the School of Medicine and oh. um, have a faculty practice. And uh, you know, over the years, over the last 17 years, I've developed a lot of knowledge uh, taking care of athletes, uh, stu- our student athlete population, and um, hope to bring uh, some of the things that I've learned through experience and uh, being able to participate in studies and and uh, really furthering our field of sports medicine. And in this case, you know, we're talking about concussion. Yeah. I'm being able to to further that and to yep. make this safer, it sounds like that's where your interests lie. Chris Borland, is it true that you don't even watch football anymore? I don't, know, and it's um, a hard-earned apathy. I, it's not that I started off in that position. Um, I feel that for me, for what I know and what I've experienced and, and some work I've done since leaving the NFL, um, football kind of is in this gray area where, I, of course, I would never protest that I benefited greatly from football. Um, I'm not one of these people who thinks it should be banned. Um, but I do feel uncomfortable watching. And there was an article yesterday in the Denver Post about Ryan Miller, who was a Colorado player and played for a few years in the league. Um, and frankly, he's going through a living hell. And, uh, you know, I, for me personally, uh, it's not worth it. I think the conversation, it's imperative that it's framed as a matter of philosophy and not fact. Um, these guys are adults in college and in the pros, and if they want to play and can give informed consent, um, I, I got so much from college football, and I hope the um, all the contact doesn't catch up with me in a few decades, but um, it may still be worth it. Um, I, I think we run into issue when um, things are presented that maybe aren't completely accurate. I'm, I'm familiar with the improvements that they've done in practicing, but there's a gulf between you know what goes on in the lab and what goes on in the field. So when you say you can't have live practice or you can only have live practice once a week, um, there's every bit as much contact in a half-padded practice in college football as there is in a full-padded practice. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, your brain doesn't know the difference whether or not you got knee pads on. So um, it's just a, incredibly difficult to translate. And I empathize with doctors. I think they're pigeonholed oftentimes by the league or by or, or the conference. And there's rules that um, if they were implemented, it would free up the doctors. I think I had, I had good doctors at Wisconsin and, and the NFL and high school. And I think oftentimes they're pigeonholed. You mentioned Ryan Miller, former CEO and Broncos lineman. Um, just before we go, Chris, do you think you opened the door, made it easier perhaps for other players to contemplate their own careers, whether they be, you know, five years, 10 years or one year? I, I can't tell. You know, I don't mm-hmm. know the color of the water I swim in, um, but I feel that I'm a benefactor of other brave people. Um, there's a lot of former players who um, I don't have a diagnosis with anything. And there's a lot of former players that have um, post-concussion syndrome, that have depression, anxiety, even ALS. Um, and for them to speak out about it, um, because you know, there's no they could have fit, rode off into the sunset. Um, I think it helps elevate the conversation. And um, it seems as though we're having more substantive, meaningful conversations that are producing um, benefits for everyone involved. Dr. Padar, are you optimistic? I'll give you the last word. Yes. Uh, I think we continue to make strides. Uh, there's a lot of great research that's currently underway. Uh, there's research that has been done. And like I said, the last decade has made my job a little bit easier because of the awareness. Uh, so 
Uh, I think we're going to see some great things, uh, how to help make things safer and still get the benefits of what sports brings to society and uh, an individual. So that is Dr. Suraf Badar, head team physician for CU, and Chris Borland, former NFL player. They're both presenters this week at the Conference of World Affairs in Boulder. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. As a girl, Lynn Hall dreamed of becoming a military pilot, but her experience at the U.S. Air Force Academy ended up being a nightmare. She arrived in 2001, not long before a sexual assault scandal came to light on campus. It eventually forced changes at all military academies. Hall's new book about her experience is called Caged Eyes, an Air Force cadet's story of rape and resilience. She sits down with my colleague Andrea Dukakis and a warning that there is some sensitive language in this conversation. Lynn, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Why did you want to become a military pilot? You know, when I was 14, I saw a space shuttle launch, and I thought um, it was magnificent, and there were seven people inside the space shuttle, and I I just believed if they could do it, I could do it too. And I just had this thing with altitude. Um, I wanted to fly for, you know, the whimsical sake of it. Um, So, yeah, that's why I went to the Air Force Academy. So it was a pilot or an astronaut maybe one day. Yes. When you were in high school, what were your impressions of the academy? Um, At one point, one of my sisters did say something about, um, you know, women being raped there. And I said, women are raped everywhere. Um, And I just thought, you know, women had broken or excuse me, broken all of these glass barriers, you know, these glass ceilings. Um, So I didn't understand that even though women had been cadets for a while, there was any um, gender disparity. When you got to the academy as a first year cadet, what surprised you about life there? Well, immediately I was surprised by the um, the subtle misogyny just in day-to-day cadet life, um, just the way that some of the upperclassmen addressed women. Um, so I, I was surprised by that, but I adjusted. I just accepted that that was life. Um, and I was busy, you know, just trying to keep up as a basic cadet and a first-year student. Let's talk about uh, Caged Eyes, which is the title of your book. What does that mean? Yeah, Caged Eyes is the reference, um, the requirement for first-year cadets to keep their eyes focused on a point straight in front of their faces at all times. So you're not allowed to gaze or look around. And as I was writing, um, Caged Eyes became a an extended metaphor throughout the story. For what exactly? Um, for the level of... Um, scrutiny and control over my body. Hmm. The idea that there were so many rules about what you could and couldn't do while you were there. Exactly. You went through basic training when you got to the academy, and you say that you weren't as strong an athlete as many of your fellow cadets. And that wasn't lost on the upperclassmen who were training you. What are your memories of that time? Yeah, you know, um, it's almost funny to me now, but I I was not as strong as my classmates. Um, I had some real weaknesses. I wasn't able to do a pull-up initially. Um, And so my upperclassmen zeroed in on that. And I just remember being up on a pull-up bar, um, unable to get my chin above above the bar and um, the upperclassmen going crazy. 
Um, were there um, most of the men training you or was it women too? It was a mix. We had a few women upperclassmen training us. And were there complaints among first-year cadets who were women about how the men were treating you at a certain point? There were. Um, at one point, a few of my um, classmates who were women um, were you know, talking about how uh, we were treated differently. You know, one of the women had gotten sand kicked in her eyes repeatedly in basic cadet training, um, and they wanted to confront one of the upperclassmen, um, which we did. And the upperclassmen said, this is just the way it is. You need to, you know, just take it. And it was really hard for you and other women to confront uh, folks when you felt like you weren't being treated well. Yeah, it was a difficult decision for those women. Um, we stayed up late in our tent discussing it one night. And, um, you know, some of us felt like we should just keep on going and not say anything. And um, a few of the stronger women really wanted to make a point of it. And was it just, say, uh, let's say a few bad apples um, in, among the folks that were training you? Or were, was this a general attitude of men toward women there? Um, well, it's it's both. Um, first of all, it's it's only a few bad apples in terms of the blatant disrespect of women. Um, that is not a common attitude among all men at the Air Force Academy, certainly. Um, but the problem becomes when those men who don't share those attitudes are bystanders and they let those men who um, do hold the misogynistic attitudes um, treat us badly. I have this idea from reading the book that every trip down the hallway for a cadet like you was a bit terrifying. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Talk about what you were subjected to by upperclassmen. Well, good. I'm glad you got that impression. <laughs> it was terrifying. Every time we walked outside of our classroom, we had to be on point with perfect uniforms, um, ready to greet upperclassmen with their full names. Um, and at some points, we had to greet upperclassmen with even more information than that. Um, we were often, you know, dropped for push-ups. So, you know, we always had to leave for class maybe 10, 15 minutes early to be sure that we got there on time because you never know when you're going to be trained. You were raped during your first year at the academy. What happened? Yeah, it was um, a senior cadet who um, was not in my squadron. I wanted to join the Aero Club because I had my private pilot's license and I wanted to be able to fly on the weekends. And this cadet was the point of contact for the club. He told me that he would help me study to pass the tests I would need. Um, and on a, a Saturday night, I met him in the library, and he led me to one of the top floors where he raped me. And this was a superior? Yes. You never reported it. Why not? I didn't report it um, because I think I knew deep down that um, it would threaten my career if I were to report it. I blamed myself deeply for it. Um, so I, I'm not even sure that I recognized it as rape. I'm, I don't think I ever thought that word. I just knew I needed to keep my mouth shut. And, and you had been sexually abused by a man when you were younger, which you say in the book made it tougher to come forward. Yes, it did. Because the shame I carried from that sexual abuse um, was just magnified that much more when I was raped yet again as a cadet. Were you aware of complaints from other women about this kind of treatment, rape, sexual assault? No, I was not. I knew that in the 90s, in the late 90s, there was one woman who um, who made an accusation of rape during a field exercise. But other than that, I had no idea that there were so many women already around me who had already been raped. This is CPR's Colorado Matters. We're speaking with Lynn Hall, author of the book Caged Eyes, about her experiences 
as a cadet at the Air Force Academy in the early 2000s. She says higher-ups turned a blind eye to sexual assault. In the book, you talk about being at lunch with some men at the academy in 2003, two years after your own rape. You're watching TV reports on the widespread sexual assault scandal there. Tell me about their reaction. At that point, I was in a squadron that was particularly hostile to women, um, unlike the first squadron I had been in, which, um, you know, those those misogynistic attitudes were not prevalent. Um, so in this second squadron, when the news broke about um, the women's stories of rape there at the Air Force Academy, they were furious um, and calling us, you know, liars and bitches, excuse my language, um, and whores. So it was a very difficult time um, to be to be there, to be around those cadets when they were, you know, yelling those things in my face. In the book, you talk about how from the rape you contracted herpes um, and then got very, very sick. What happened? Yes. So two weeks after the rape in the library, um, I became very ill. Um, And I was taken to the emergency room at the Air Force Academy Hospital and diagnosed with meningitis. I was put in the intensive care unit, um, but it wouldn't be for several more months before um, the doctors put together that I had contracted herpes from the rape, which caused the meningitis. And you talk about how your medical care was subpar, which made you feel less comfortable coming forward with the fact that you had herpes. Right. The neurologist over my care... Um, was disrespectful to me and did not believe my symptoms. Um, even after I was released from the intensive care unit, he treated me like I was, um, you know, a hysterical woman. Um, at one point, he wrote in my records that he thinks that my symptoms were due to an adjustment disorder rather than the meningitis infection, which he failed to treat. And had you been treated earlier, um, you might not have had the headaches that really have plagued you for many years. Right, right. Um, yeah, you know, it's it's my assertion that had I gotten proper medical care, um, I would not I would not have chronic pain, which I do today. And what exactly prompted you to eventually leave the academy? The um, the Air Force discharged me two years after my sexual assault um, for the medical condition, the ongoing chronic pain. And um, you ultimately finished up school at the University of Colorado Boulder. Uh, your headaches continued. What do you do now? Um, well, right now I'm a full-time writer. Um, in the past decade, I've worked with survivors of sexual assault as a crisis counselor. Um, I majored in psychology, and um, working with victims was a way for me to understand further, um, you know, rape culture and, you know, the common experiences that too much of us share. Um, and then I became a full-time writer. And why write this particular book and share these experiences so publicly now? Well, the reason I wanted to write the book is because I realized, um, like I said, how prevalent these experiences are. And um, this is my personal story, but it reflects so many, um, you know, so many women's experiences um, with rape in the military and, and rape outside of the military as well. Whatever happened to the man who raped you, do you know? He was ultimately incarcerated in another case, um, and he served 14 months in prison. 
I should say we contacted the Academy to get a response to your book but didn't hear back in time for this story. In any case, since the sexual assault scandal there, Congress has required the service academies to issue an annual report on sexual assault. Last year, the number of assaults at the Academy dropped by a third, though the Air Force Academy still gets more complaints than the Army and Navy. Do you think the culture is improving? Yeah, you know, that's a question that I asked myself repeatedly as I was moving towards publication day. Um, And I hoped that there had been changes that affected the culture. Um, Unfortunately, since the release of Caged Eyes, I've heard from a number of women who are current cadets at the Air Force Academy, and their stories would um, lead me to believe that things have not entirely changed. Um, They still feel like they're being punished for the accusations of sexual violence. A a woman is leading the academy. Um, Another woman is going to replace her. Do you think that makes a difference in terms of the culture? Um, One one can be hopeful about that. But, um, you know, unfortunately, when you are a three-star general, you have been in this system um, where misogyny is inherent for, for decades. And so sometimes those attitudes come out whether or not you are a man or a woman. Um, I can't say that um, this particular three-star general has made a difference. And certainly the stories I'm hearing from women there currently um, make me doubtful. Lynn, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Lynn Hall speaking with CPR's Andrea Dukakis about her new book, Caged Eyes, an Air Force cadet story of rape and resilience. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Photographer Paul Bannock says you don't find owls, they find you. Often called the Owl Whisperer, Bannock's latest book captures a year in the lives of North American owls. It is filled with striking images of these elusive birds. He joins us from Seattle to give us a glimpse into the world of Colorado's owls. And uh, welcome to the program, Paul. Thank you very much. Your book, as we said, follows owls through the seasons of their lives. What are Colorado's owls up to this time of year in general? Well, this is a perhaps the most interesting season in the lives of owls in that most owl species are trying to attract mates and encourage them to select nest sites. Now, there's some exceptions. The great horned owls are already nesting. But um, across Colorado, short-eared owls, burrowing owls, long-eared owls, northern pygmy owls, eastern screech owls, and several other species are, are making that effort with distinctive calls and in some cases courtship flights to encourage their mates to consider them. What might some of those calls sound like? <laughs> um, well, a few months ago, uh, folks may have heard a call of the great horned owl, the earliest breeder in Colorado, and the great horned owl sounds something like this. And um, about now, and for the last, maybe about the last three or four weeks, if you live in some of the mixed conifer forests of Colorado, you might hear the northern pygmy owl. 
that sounds something like this. And those are two very distinctive calls in the evenings, in the conifer forests, particularly in the mountains. They may hear a quicker call. And this is the northern Sawet owl. And as you can tell from just that sample of, of calls, there are 19 species of owls in North America yeah. and several species in Colorado, and each has a very distinctive call. Your book focuses really on four owl species as representatives of four different habitats. And mm-hmm. um, I, I want to talk more about the burrowing owl, which is found in Colorado. Uh-huh. Uh, the, the idea of an owl burrowing, I think plays with our notion of what owls do. Tell us more about this bird in particular. Well, the burrowing owl breaks lots of what we might consider to be rules for owls. It nests underground rather than in a snag. It is most active during the day rather than at night. It actually does better where the ground or the landscape is disturbed than where it is pristine. And Some birds migrate, some are residents. Most of the Colorado birds migrate. And then the other thing is they have a really funny way when they, for a lot of owls, when the owls begin to leave the nest, they leave never to return. And burrowing owl youngsters and adults seem to be in a constant tug of war with the the youngsters trying to get further and further away from the nest and the parents (laughs) trying to keep them under control. And it's amusing because the broods might be up to 12 youngsters and there might be another nest close by. So you might have 24 or 36 youngsters co-mingling in a way that the parents never would with with the neighbors. (laughs) It's quite amusing. Wow. I think that there are probably parents and and perhaps children listening to that who might identify. Um, Is it pretty dangerous for a burrowing owl? I mean, I'm just thinking of coyotes and other possible predators that, you know, are much closer to them because they're not in trees. Yeah, the burrowing owl is, it's a fascinating bird because it developed like a lot of owls. There's 19 owl species in North America and everyone is an indicator species for habitat. Okay. So its presence and its relative abundance tells a story of a landscape. And the burrowing owl evolved alongside the American bison. The bison roamed across the landscape, chewed down the grass low. And that grass being chewed low may created an opportunity for prairie dogs and ground squirrels and other rodents to come in and create tunnels on that short grass landscape. Now, they liked that short grass landscape because they could see for a distance and they could see any trouble. Mm. Now, all of these fuzzy little rodents... Um, would whistle or scream when they saw a predator, whether that be a badger or whether that be a hawk. Then the badgers moved in where they had an easy meal, and they also created tunnels. Then the burrowing owl moved in, and they had these whole, these giant series of tunnel systems, and they had the early warning system of the rodents. And the badgers much preferred the rodents over the burrowing owls, but the burrowing owls had this alarm system, they had tunnels, and they had short grass that allowed them to see trouble in advance before they would duck into a tunnel. Now, when we lost the American bison, 
we also lost many components of that critical ecosystem, huh. uh, which has really challenged the burrowing owl. And, but it gives a really it gives an interesting story because a lot of people think of owls as being an animal of the wildest country. And although they do, most species do better where we, we let the land go wild, burrowing owls actually do better where the ground has been disturbed. So without the bison, they do well where there's been some grazing, provided there are those burrows from the prairie dogs or ground squirrels or badgers for them to nest in and adjacent burrows for the young to explore as they gain independence and provided those ranchers or farmers are not using powerful anticoagulant rodenticides that might kill the owls. And I love that story. They they can live alongside our agricultural and our ranching pursuits and control the pests that might otherwise plague these economic interests. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Mortar, and we're speaking with Paul Bannock, the photographer, about his latest book, Owl, A Year in the Lives of North American Owls. We're talking about the birds, specifically in Colorado. And Paul, owls sometimes fly close to you or circle around you, a bit like they're checking you out. Is is that what they're doing? Uh, it At times, it. I'm often asked questions like this, and I... I have to get the context to say exactly what's going on. Um, Some of the situations when an owl flies close to you, um, oftentimes it's because you've approached close to a nesting area and they want to lure you away from that area. So they may circle close to you hoping that you might follow them and lure you away from an area that um, they're uncomfortable having you present in. Oh, wow. They're leading you along. That's cool. And um, do do you think of owls as particularly smart creatures? I do, and I don't know if there's science to bear that out. Yeah, it's interesting. If you look throughout human history, Greeks, Romans, different African cultures, Asian cultures, Native Americans, none have ever had an ambivalence towards owls. Yeah. And is it because they have flat faces and large eyes and erect posture that remind us of ourselves? (laughs) Um, Is it because they remind us enough of ourselves, but yet they're active at times and in places that we're afraid to to venture into? Um, And does this give them – does this give us the sense that they're wise because they know about these places and times? Whatever whatever the reason is, that's a very common belief. And while owls – are not stupid. Um, They're not necessarily the smartest of birds, but I have seen some phenomenal displays of mental power, let's say. And I'll give you one example. Yeah. There was, I was watching a northern pygmy owl, which is an owl you can find in Colorado. For sure. And I had been watching it basically, um, shall we say, managing a bird feeder. In other words, it was taking birds from the bird feeder. It would take one (laughs) California quail a week. And it's interesting, those California quails are two and a half times the size of the pygmy owl. It would take one a week, and it would feast on it for a week and not bother any birds, and then a week later it would take another. And this was happening at a friend's house, and he had me watch the house, and suddenly and unexpectedly there was a snowstorm, and two feet of snow fell. 
And the quail this owl had been feeding on and the quail it had from the week before were both buried by two feet of snow. And I was watching the owl, and to me it looked hungry. So I did something I almost never do, and I try to leave the birds alone and watch their normal behavior. Well, I went out to the snow, and I dug the freshest quail up, Hmm. and I put them right beside where I dug them out, and I went back inside and waited. And that owl flew down. He dug into the hole that I had refilled, ignoring the quail that was sitting right next to him and dug down to where the quail would have been. And then he peers up at me with a snow-covered face as if to say, where'd you put it? And it's sitting right beside him. So he flew away and he dug up the quail from two weeks earlier and started it trying to get some meat off of that one while I frantically ran over, put the quail back in the hole, buried it, and the owl came back and this time he found it. Now, you may think the owl's stupid not to notice it, but this owl was able to remember, remember the exact location um, spatially and also the depth in the snow of two different caches. Who knows how many other caches it may have remembered at the same time. Right, and in some ways it's about reframing what uh, intelligence is, I suppose. Let's take a quick break and then rejoin our conversation with Paul Bannock about a year in the life of North American owls. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. There is just something about owls. Paul Bannock knows that. The photographer has released Owl, A Year in the Lives of North American Owls. We're talking about their presence here in Colorado. And, Paul, I think we we often think of owls as night creatures, nocturnal, but they are not all, correct? Yes, you you are correct. What I... I had a startling moment. Maybe not startling. I had a memorable moment when I was up in near Colorado Springs, up in the mountains near Manitou. And I had been photographing northern pygmy owls during the day, and I knew that northern pygmy owls had their peak activity right before sunset. And then I was about to photograph flammulated owls. And in speaking to a researcher, I he shared with me that flammulated owls, one of the most nocturnal owls in North America, has its peak activity right after sunset. So it was interesting to me that the most diurnal owl and the most nocturnal owl were separated in their peak behavior by only about two hours. Mm. So it reframed the way I think of owls being nocturnal. And, And now I tend to tell people that owls are animals that are most active when the light is low. And the reason for that is owls are most active when their particular prey is active. So some owls, like a burrowing owl, will peak more crepuscular at the end of the day and the beginning of the day during the summer uh, because it can prey on lots of insects as well as voles and mice. But then in the winter, when there aren't many insects, it's mostly nocturnal. And you'll see snowy owl populations that sometimes will show up in Colorado. And where they're preying on rats, they are nocturnal. Where they're preying on birds, sometimes they'll be crepuscular or diurnal. 
What tips do you have for capturing beautiful owl photographs? Um, or, or am I asking you to share trade secrets? <laughs> <laughs> yes, you are. Okay. But there, there are, I can share some. And, I, and, and some of these really apply to all wildlife photography. The first thing to keep in mind is you never become a wildlife photographer because you want to be paid well by the hour. <laughs> it takes a lot of time, a lot of mistakes, a lot of misses. The number one thing, the, the few pieces of advice I would give is, number one, research your subject. Learn it well before you go out and photograph it. Secondly, you want to photograph wildlife that's behaving normally, and you want it ideally to be coming to you rather than you scaring it. And that means you have to understand, you have to arrive before the animal arrives and set yourself up and contemplate the photographs before they get there um, so that what you have are photographs that create empathy rather than creating a sense of stress or, or distress. Oh, interesting. That, that sounds like an ethic you have. It's an important ethic, but in, it, 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 it's right for the wildlife, but it also results in in images that feel better. And it's you can't always describe why a photo feels good versus um, feeling stressful. Oftentimes, it relates to an empathy, your empathy for that subject and what that subject's experiencing. In the last few minutes we have, are Colorado owls facing any threats? We spoke in the beginning about the relationship between some owls, the burrowing variety, and bison, um, to what extent are other owls facing threats? Most owls are facing threats. Um, but on the positive side, we still have all 19 species of owls in North America that were here when the first Europeans arrived. Um, the owls that are under the greatest threats are the ones that are struggling to live on the same landscapes that we prize for agriculture. Um, and in Colorado, that is the burrowing owl, the long-eared owl, um, the short-eared owl, and also the barn owl. And what's interesting is that these owls actually have tremendous benefit for agriculture because they'll control the very animals that are considered pests to agriculture. Mm. But we need to understand what they need at each stage of their life and at each season of the year. And if we understand that, we can coexist with, with them and benefit from them, not just economically, but also from the inspiration and the education. I'll give you a really easy example. In our agricultural lands, you could be looking at one rancher's land. And in one view, you could see the habitat of five different owls in Colorado. And three of them are distinct, have distinctly different needs. So let's say in the foreground, you may have a short grass area that's been grazed by cattle or goats, let's say, and you have the burrows of, of prairie dogs. Yep. The main thing there is keep the burrows. Don't get rid of the burrows and don't use the anticoagulant pesticides. And then you need to make sure that you try not to disturb it too much during the months of, let's say, April to July. And then let's, in the background, we have about, you might about have, 30 seconds, Paul. Okay. Long -eared, short eared owls need long grass. So they need ungrazed areas during the early spring. And long eared owls need some shrubs with magpie nests. 
All are hunting in the same areas at the same time, but each has a distinct need that a landowner can address. On a single piece of property, you might have all that going on. You heard photographer Paul Bannock. His latest book is Owl, A Year in the Lives of North America's Owls. We've posted photos to CPRnews.org, including one of an owl with some outsized prey, a snake in its talons. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.